Hello Grumpians, we are back in the room. We've just taken a prolonged month off, purely for the fact that my head was melting trying to edit and do everything else um, that I've been doing for a year with the podcast. So yeah, it was rejuvenating and I've got some absolutely amazing guests lined up, which I think you're going to love. But before we start all of that, just a couple of parish notices. The first one is that the podcast episodes will not be weekly anymore. They will be bi-weekly, just purely for my mental state and health and well-being. And secondly, we've got still got a couple of codes that we can pump out. So the first one for 15% off your Northcore gear, use the code capital letters Grumpy Pod 15, and that'll get you 15% off any of your Northcore surfing hardware, which I use. I use the leashes, the bags, the robies. They're absolutely amazing. So get amongst that. Also, Brawl Surf, a Scottish brand, which also do an amazing YouTube channel and some awesome edits, have got a code for us capital letters. Grumpy Surfer to get 20% off any of your purchase for their merchandise on their website if you go to brawsurf.co.uk and that's where you can find all their gear. Okay, so on the podcast today, a returning guest who actually put the first ever podcast on a few weeks back, John Thompson. We have got some absolutely killer stories for you from Afghanistan. I nearly cry. And John tells an awesome story that leaves my mouth flat on the floor. It's absolutely crazy and I had no idea that it happened to him. So, please enjoy this week's podcast with John Thompson. Tomo, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me back. Part three. Part three. And the sun is shining outside. The yeah. uh, the rain's gone and uh, blue skies are here. We're in summer, ads. We're in summer. Yeah, this is nice and warm, isn't it? Makes a change. My makes... palms are sweating. I'm quite nervous. I don't know why you're nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to my house again. Uh, excuse the mess. Obviously, uh, you know what it's like to have two children wake up and wreck the cleaning that you did before you all went to bed because uh, the house has got Lego everywhere and Nerf, Nerf bullets. So my boy had his birthday and he decided with his birthday money to buy a giant Nerf gun. So they're everywhere. Yeah, I got I got uh, my little girl a Nerf gun a while back and yeah, they ended up all over the house, then outside, then we lost them all. I don't know how you can lose like 40 Nerf bullets. Yeah, yeah. By, by 1,600. I keep getting shot in the ass. Um, but my boy's going through a really strange thing where he likes to poke me in the ass and punch me in the ass. So maybe that's just a, a boy thing. I don't really remember it. Maybe we've got a strange one. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) He's fed though. What have you been doing up to? What uh, what have you been doing up to? What's been going on? What have I been doing up to? You've been spending too much time in the West Country, my friend. I'm too much (laughs) damage, I, boy? What have I been up to? Not much, really. Um, Just growing as a man, um, which is quite, I don't know, hippie-ish. I don't know whether I'd had my spine operation the last time we spoke. I had it in December. I don't think I'd had it. No, well, we did the first podcast in June, so it's mm. just been over a year. So I was I was waiting out um, on lots of painkillers in the the psychedelic trippy world of 
uh, opiate-based painkillers for an operation. I mean, COVID had happened <clears throat> and uh, the operation was passed. So I, I managed to get the operation in December, which was fantastic. Best thing, I've put in a private hospital, which was great. Uh, was kind of shell-shocked going in there when the nurse said, uh, here's the menu and opened up this TGI friday size menu and said, after your operation, what would you like to eat? Uh, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know. What can I have? And they're like, the turkey and... Uh, cranberry and brie is delicious. I was like, yeah, Jen. Um, but yeah, it was good. Woke up, walked straight away, had a great Christmas um, off painkillers, and then start the whole rehabilitation process into getting strong and and uh, mobile again, which is where I'm at now. And a whole journey of my continued life journey of reflection and put into bed things that you know that you think about to make you a better person to make you the best version of who you are have ever been or ever will be at this present moment that continually gets better and that's where i'm at it must be a bit weird for you because i know i know being a busy bloke or you know being a sergeant major as you were Mm. so kind of this is going to sound really bad you're doing you like your rehab stuff when you leave in december but you kind of, once you've done that, you're kind of a, a, a loose plethora. You're not really doing too much. So it must be kind of strange. I mean, I'm in a kind of a semi-same semi, semi same mm-hmm. situation as well where I'm leaving next year. So I've got a job to do, but I'm also focusing on other things. But those other things, in the military, we want everything to come right now. We, it needs to happen now or we are fixers. So if something's broken, we go and fix it straight away. And life, uh, and life and people don't work like that in, I'm going to call it normal people don't work like that. No, they don't. So you are having to take your time to, to go through that process of doing it. Well, I think I think the way that I understand that is we have no patience because we're preparing for a mission all the time. Mission, 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 mission. And there is always battle prep, so concurrent activity in which to do in order to get ready for that mission because we have an h hour in which we're going to then do the mission or we're going to depart but for me it was extremely frustrating because everything for my future is time sensitive and it doesn't start until december january february 21 stroke 22 so i am marking time which initially was so frustrating and so worrying because you felt inept and inadequate kind of like your hands were tied behind your back and your legs were tied together but you've got to to go somewhere but you you can't do it so it's really really frustrating until you you get to this stage where you just go and you let go of all the control that which we have been which has been integrated into our characters over the last 22 years so i've managed to let go of that and an, an amazing privilege initially i was really bitter about covid happening and me leaving but lots of people have been in the same thing there was no pomp or fanfare or here's the goodbye or sort of the end of end of your career so i was quite bitter about about just being at home and then losing a sense of identity but now i've just managed it's kind of like dissipated and i wake up feel great um kids up and i do the dad thing and be the best dad that i possibly can be but i'm still waiting but I'm being paid. It's great. It's, do you know what? It's great. I've been thinking over the last few months and it started to occur to me a little bit that I remember when we were at 4-2 Commando together, mm-hmm. you know, back in what, 2000 and... 
what 2005 i was there what two th- no i was there 2004 to 2007 when we went onto a training team and i just remember walking around and knowing everybody you know knew you knew what's going on and mm-hmm. you, um, you knew everybody's business so to speak and it was quite a invigorating time you know but but now when i look back at it you realize that you're there in that moment and now when i don't really know that many people don't know any anti-tankers anymore the courses that come through like on the pti course um obviously i'm a pti so i don't really know those those guys as well and i'm very much have been for the last sort of 10 years almost like working on my own yeah yeah under my own steam doing my own thing still putting a little bit of output there but focusing on the things that you know i want to do but it almost kind of segregates you from everyone everyone else so in in my head it's like i remember being you know it's that classic cliche the guy walking down the street and he's got his fingers out and he's walking down with a big strut you go hey 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 you know pointing his fingers out so he's the man but now you kind of look back and go, well, actually... And that's how it felt when, when you were surrounded by the rest of this group. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was just thinking, it's kind of like the analogy where you, it's, it's like your first paper round. It's the first week of your first paper round and it's hoofing. Or um, you never know how good life is when you're a school kid until you've left and then you move on. So kind of like that you're surrounded by people it's the best it's ever going to be you've got almost no responsibility but you have got lots of responsibility uh, to be an adult and make you make your own decisions and then as you progress like we've done and you become self-managing that's great as well because you've had all of that interaction with other people but it can become a really lonely place and a cynical place where you start to look at the larger organization um, and and can potentially feel sorry for yourself because you don't have those close connections. And the only time that we would have them is probably in the mess or if we walk past each other or occasionally when people take a trip back to Commander Training Centre in Limston and then you just seem to see everybody that you know um, and then you get that reconnection to a, a, a wonderful past. Whereas it's almost the the correct way to evolve through a career where you suddenly lose connection and i'm ready and then ready to leave um as you grow because you're doing that with, with a family as well and um well there was the, um, the the rsm um here where i am at the moment a few weeks ago um he left and okay. i yeah i think it was quite fitting because there was a detail pushed out and it went out on the tunnel and everyone you know lined the main dragon and clapped him out which I think was pretty cool. I mean, yeah, he's like, you know, the main man. He's the senior NCO of the camp. And, you know, he ran sort of like the background stuff. But for somebody that isn't sort of like that higher rank or that higher, let's call it a higher priority. Like for me, for instance, I've kind of accepted now that when I come to leave next year in May, that... I'm not going to love that. Mm. I'm not going to go, oh, have everyone not, you know, pat me on the back, going, oh, well done, ads, you know, all that. And I, and I love, I know I talked about it last time, is the Indispensable Man poem. Yeah, yeah. Where I, it was looking, to, I was looking at it on yeah. OneDrive today when I was trying to, trying to um, see some memories. So where you put your hand in the water and that's you in your job and then you take it back out again and then you, the void where your hand comes out gets filled. And I think that's, 
such a, a pertinent part of any form of job or your your um your place in the world is that anyone can be replaced absolutely but it's your experience that you draw out of it you know any and i think the other thing is as well is that no one's that important and above other people either absolutely and i think it is the it is the proper the proper development in 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 people to the state of in the what people would say the state of nirvana um oh mess up that theology but to the point where you reach reach you understand who you are and your place and not get caught up with your ego of who you are because I'm, I'm the same no pomp and ceremony but why should we have pomp and ceremony why should why should jim have had everyone clap him out you know ultimately everyone needs a dodgy curry then they shit themselves there's no there's no pecking order on a toilet when you've got diarrhea everybody's and that's the best e- analogy i've ever heard <laughs> and everybody's <laughs> exactly the same aren't they you know you get dodgy curry you go, yeah um but for us especially because we we've been part of this organization and don't understand how the real world works unless you do a lot of skiving off um <laughs> i'm looking at you i'm looking at i'm you. not rolling my eyes at all <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> it's hard to find your place because nobody else in the, in civilian the civilian world gives a shit about each other and that'd be hard for us to deal with because we were part of this team and that's you know we're obviously we're going to talk about war and things in a minute but I, I sent somebody this to send um to their partner and it says you are totally replaceable at work you're not replaceable at home home is your real life keep that in perspective always and also reminded me of um i think it was a, one of the one of the lads posted something on facebook and and it was something along the lines of it doesn't matter how i feel when i go to pick the children up from school i go there in the best state possible because they need to see me in the best state possible and i need to have these good relationships so it's kind of good that we we feel the loss of the loss of our organization and the and the draw to actually what matters, which is family and, and the real world, because ultimately everything's made up. You know, the lines on the road, they're fucking made up by somebody. Oh, we'll put this road here. There's no rules for it. And we don't have to follow these rules. And that's, that's, that is a development in us to become more ambitious, more innovative people. And you can only do, you can only become innovative if you feel peace and freedom and not non-attachment to the strict the strict boundaries of which we've been used to you know the most successful people are the 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 people who cuff things the ones who bend the rules the people who stick to the rules they're continuity but they're not going to change the world not in the ways in which we want to change the world and live our lives because ultimately i think we that you know we need to change our children's worlds and we do that by letting go of military wise especially combat people like ads and myself and, and the rest of our comrades is is we just shed all that and become these new people because we have to because i'm not a sergeant major anymore well i am on paper but i don't feel like it i feel like a civvy i haven't shaved for a year and i love it absolutely love it i've put my hands in my pockets if i could grow my hair i would fuck would i god would i grow my hair if i could um, but i can't but yeah exciting times ahead yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Built upon the wonderful testing experiences that we've had. And the majority of those will be combat experiences because they're the ones that really provoke thought. So a lot of the 
feedback I've had from podcast from the podcast itself and putting a few things out on Instagram, a few little, you know, Chad Chad questions and stuff, what people want to listen to more of is, you know, they want to hear about like combat experience and stuff because I, I was um it was uh Armed Forces Day Sunday. I think so, yeah. Lots of people twenty six twenty sixth of June was Armed was Armed Forces Day. And uh it just reminded me of my first ever time away was 2002. So after the, the September 11th. Well, yeah, I saw the picture you posted. In yeah, so that, that was literally taken two days after I'd landed in the mountains. I th- to be honest with you. At Bravo Company? No. Oh, I, you were Zulu? I, I was in X-ray, X-ray Company, yeah. yeah. So, All five. Yeah, and... I just had to say every company name before I got to yeah. X-Ray. I would have just said, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. 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 But it was really strange because that whole time, I never knew where I was. The only time I did was when I was on the Pakistan border and there was a flag on the hill where yeah, yeah, it denoted yeah. Afghanistan to Pakistan, which was, which, was, which was mega random. But yeah, it was, and that was, so 2002, so that's 19 years since... The first time I, I properly went away. Now I've never some bootnecks that listen to this or military people that listen to this are probably gonna cringe at this, but I've never done a major exercise. I've done a few Norways, mm-hmm. that's about it. I've never been on ship. Bear in mind I'm a Royal Marines commando, mm-hmm. so you know, we'll see soldiers. You're not never been on ship. Not a sprog. Well, the only ship I ever went on was I did a demonstration. The yellow submarine. No. <laughs> <laughs> That was smoking something before I joined up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only ship I ever went on was HMS Belfast, which was a cadet ship down in Portsmouth. Yeah. And the only reason why I went on that is because we did a um, demonstration for the James Bond premiere that came out, Die Another Day. Mm. So I had to sleep on ship. That's the only time I've ever been on ship. True story. Bloody hell. Yeah. So the only time I've I ever... I love being on ship. Well, the only time I've ever done anything is been going away. So yeah. Jakarta, Afghanistan, Talik, Iraq. Herrick 5, mm. Afghanistan again, and 12, Herrick 12. So the only times I've ever really been away is doing that. And then, you know, the surfing trips I've been on and stuff like that, but that's kind of, you know, buckshee, isn't it, really? Which is kind of crazy to think back that, you know, 11, 11 years of being in anti-tanks and doing soldiering, the majority of that, I was either training to go away or we were, we were teaching people to fight mm. to go to Afghanistan, like on a training team, which is um, quite quite random. The second half of my career, I was just you know messed about and gone surfing and yeah, yeah, done yeah. shit I shouldn't have done. But <clears throat> well, I was talking to people recently, and they, um, so uh, a, a very special person. I'm not going to name any names, but a very special person. And um, and she asked me, do do you think about things? Because obviously people are interested, aren't they? Because if they know a little bit about who you are and where you've been and what you've done, they you know they'd want to know whether they're sleeping next to Grant Mitchell was going to fucking lose it because he's got Falkland nightmares going on in his head, which I don't. Um, but they're they're really interested in it because um, they are interesting times. They're brutal times. They're formative times. They're they're thought provoking times. They're reflective times. They're the the times that give you the skills, kit and equipment in which to pull yourself out of any hole that you find yourself in and also to continue to rise high and adapt to any situation that you're being successful in. Um, but I think you missed something from going on ship because it is amazing. Uh, it, it got worse. Well, the ships got better for us, um, but the 
the conditions of the ability to have fun got worse. But it's basically four, four meals a day, pile the plates up, piss off the caterers, pick up phones that are around the ship and in the common phone people that you don't like and cock them over the phone. Um, you used to be able to make tannoys over, uh, you used to be able to make ship-wide tannoys from anywhere in the ship, which bootlegs would take the piss out of. We would have motorbike gangs on ship. So um, guys would just sort of have to cap. Some guy would start a motorbike gang, and basically what he'd do is have an invisible motorbike that he would get on and off, and he'd have his helmet. And then the ship would go, they'd go around the ship just riding as a motorbike gang. And, uh, and then you'd have tannoys from the ship's captain saying, Can the motorbike gang please stop? Because it's blocking <laughs> stuff up. And then you do this three times a day and use all the water showering um, and have save up two cans a day from the from the beer beer bosun and then have parties it's amazing sell somewhere get off do an exercise then have a run ashore which is sort of time where you are and then and that's how you saw the world you know from the advert that's how you saw the world you know i went to the pyramids went to the Colosseum in rome went all over the mediterranean southeast asia north america and canada um the south pacific um and you just saw the world, and that's what what part of the part of the deal was. We we joined at the best time. Um, just turn that so it's facing towards you again. This bit. Yeah, so the red bit's facing towards you. Right. That's it. Yeah, so we joined at the best time to, to to see different things, but yeah, it's the it's the combat operations that really amalgamate everything. Um, and you mentioned Herrick Twelve there, so I think in the first podcast we predominantly spoke about five. Yeah, we got training. Well, I want to spin the little story first. So I, I, I was, uh, that that photo that was taken that I put up on Instagram. Um, I thought I, you were the Bush Tucker man then. I felt like the was. Bush Tucker man. Yeah. I thought I'd, people had absolutely rinsed me because I looked like some, you know, Aussie SAS yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of, I think, what I was going for. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. But I remember, so we got flown up into the mountains in a, uh, I think it was a Chinook. Maybe we might have been a sea king, and the pla- and the helo didn't land, so we had to step off, um, step out of the helo, onto the ground while it was hovering. Yeah. yeah. But as we were getting out, uh, one of the lads had the GPMG, and uh, had it upside down, had cocked it and made it ready, but didn't put the safety catch on. And as he was standing up, he put he put a burst of seven six two through the floor Jesus. of the uh, of of the sea king. And that was my first contact. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. But yeah, so we, we were talking from the end of Afghanistan, uh, Herrick 5, we, we talked about the ambush that we were involved in. But there was loads of other skirmishes from that point that, that we were involved in, um, which were really random. I think there was so many. I think it was every other day, wasn't yeah, it? For like seven months. Yeah, I think it was about 30, like... <laughs> 35 of them i know fat boy had a whole list of them i think um and he did send me some stuff because i i wanted to kind of document because he never took it never made a diary which i really wish i had done and i didn't take any photographs which i really wish i had done now because the, the memories uh, unless i'm speaking to somebody i i just don't remember um i don't know if we spoke about did we speak about now was that that was that was a good contact it was a there's some of them I can't even I can't even remember. Well, that well, we can talk about that because I thought that was probably one of the, there was two places that I thought on Herrick Five were the most random ever, 
And the first one was, you know, we were, when we went really far north mm -hmm. and we got told it was the f uh, first time that anyone in that region had seen, this is going to sound racist, but it's not, ever seen white folk before. <gasps> oh my God. Um, I thought it was really weird. And yeah, it, I think we went to a place called Tisney. Yes, that, that was it, Tisney, yeah. yeah. And, and so it's past Musakala, which is the furthest north that anyone had ever been. And then Tisney was, I don't know, about 10, 20k after that. Yeah, I thought it was really weird because it, it mm. reminded me of the Lord of the Rings. Mm. And it reminded me of like the, the, the guys, the humans going into an area where they'd never seen them before. I thought it was really weird, and I just remember I've got a couple of photos that that I took up there. I mean, if I put if I put them up on Instagram, it'd just be like another guy in the yeah, mountains yeah. of Afghanistan. But it, it's it, it's kind of the story that goes behind it. I think. Yeah, but I also I also think the 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 topography of the ground changed as well. So, oh, it's so crazy. When, yeah, so when you're talking about Sangin in the summer, it'd be lush and green around the the irrigation and watercourses. And then it goes into kind of a, a rolling desert with really small, I'm going to say really small tussock grass, but it's not. It's kind of, from, from a distance, it looks like somebody's just got a moss gun and shot it in a scatter mode. So you've got like regular bits of moss everywhere. But then as you go further north, it turns into almost like jagged, dark brown rocks so it's really bad for vehicles to drive drive down so the angle the angles of <clears throat> the angles of the way the ground slopes is is quite extreme and i think there was the, we saw armor up there as well i'm pretty sure pretty sure i saw a warrior up there and might have been 12 um i didn't go that far north on 12 we only went to um now but it was just this changing changing ground and that's what's so wonderful about it is I'm going to sound like a hippie. Halfway through all of this, mate, I'm going to sound like a hippie. Um, just because I think really deeply about it. Is is that... When you start off in Sangin, and it's lush and green, and there is vegetation, it's kind of like your youth. And you go through this... Because Sangin's dangerous. This crazy, tumultuous, intense, powerful, emotional, risky world which is cliche wild west yeah. isn't it and then as you f the further you go north there's still there's still danger and risk just like in life but it gets a little bit more barren and you can see a little bit more and therefore it becomes slightly more peaceful and you become wiser and you can take time to make your decisions but it's still new terraforming land and it actually becomes a bit scarier because as you progress through life and it ultimately comes to its ending that becomes a scary place but you feel at peace in this scary place whereas Sangin is just sang in his uh student night pound a pint ladies everywhere and you're, ah this is crazy what we're gonna do and you're just reacting 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 um so uh, you know the tours were just even just a six month tour was just a journey through life but you don't even think about that now at the time you're just like this is amazing now i'm gonna have some ice cream <laughs> this is amazing now i'm gonna have some ice cream would well, you remember driving from fob price and driving we, we missed that singing because we were going towards nowzad and we it was really really random so exactly what you're talking about there with like a mosque gun all i remember is we came up we went down the deck that we, big white mosque yeah uh no not that one that was in um that kandahar. was up by uh, kandahar yeah. not kandahar kajaki we went to it on Herrick 12. We yeah. were around that area. But when we went up to Nauzad, there was a bit, you know, the ridge that was, if you're looking north, there's like a ridge line that runs down the right-hand side of it. Mm -hmm. 
crocodile ridge. Yeah, so crocodile ridge. And it's, so got, the, it's got a cut in the middle. Yeah, yeah. so the other side of that, you just remind me of something saying that, big cut in the middle. We'll talk about it in a minute. And uh, that whole area for about, I think it must have been like a 5K square was just green. Mm-hmm. Really, really random, yeah, yeah. completely green, but then everywhere else was just desert. And yeah, I yeah. just thought it was like, I think I might have a couple of pictures of it as well, just kind of sitting down eating something, but it was just like green. And then we ended up going up to the other side of this uh, ridge line and we were putting in an OP to um, do a bit of Overwatch because I think Lima Company we were in now as at the time. Whichever company Bugsy was in. Yeah, so it was yeah. Lima Company, yeah. <clears throat> But when I say you, you reminded me of something, do you remember going through that pass? I do, yeah. That's where we got, We I think we got, we got shot out by a 107, 107 Chinese rocket. Yeah, and then there was a couple of sporadic bursts being fired down because it was basically like... we ran, a, One of the lads got run over by a Viking. Yeah. Battle casualty replacement called, he's called Tomo. Um, not me, obviously. Um, but he, he was at 40 with him. And I didn't remember this because you're so you so maybe it's just kind of an ignorant, egotistical prick. But I'm so involved in what's going around, and then I then I just and then I leave everything to to distant memory and crack on. But he he literally came out, got out of the Viking, and then the Viking reversed and ran over him, which is I mean I don't know they're what ten tons. They're heavy. Yeah, they're just lying on a bit of grass at the moment yeah, at, yeah. at the back of camp. But yeah, but, uh, that yeah. that was a that was a that, that was a really weird situation as well because you always get taught not to go around areas that you could have high vantage points either side yeah, yeah it's absolutely a, it's a classic like in the rock where they're in the shower room and they're all in that all, all on the yeah, balcony yeah, yeah, and shooting down into the thing that's literally what it was well i was talking, I was talking to um i was talking to somebody the other day and uh so one of my friend's kids actually who's really into world war one world war two and it, we were talking about afghanistan not not in a brutal graphic way this is what somebody's head looks like. None of that. But um, in a way that we, you just are walking into contact. It was called Wrecky by Fire, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So people would look at things like the, Nap- the Peninsula Wars and the Napoleonic Wars and World War One, were trench warfare where, you know, how could people just stand up and walk towards death? Um, and that sounds extreme, especially when we're saying it. And if military people listen to this, they might think, oh, that's a bit cheesy. But literally... Well, that's what we were doing. That's exactly what we were doing. So the, so the change from... The only time where it didn't happen would have been in World War Two. So World War One, people were getting up and walking forward. And then they would be ambushed by machine gun fire because of smoke and the fog of war over no man's land. Slightly different because they actually had uniformed enemy. But we didn't. And the worst thing was, it was clear. So you, so there was line of sight from, from anyone. So snipers just, thank goodness they're shit shots in, in the main. Um, or else, you know, you and I sat on that raised seat, which is raised above everybody else's fucking seat. There's a YouTube video <laughs> of me with it from Sky News that I could probably post. To- yeah. Um, you know, it's just a, a big white face target. Because there's no cam cream, obviously. There's no desert cam cream because it would just melt off, even if there was anyway, and you wouldn't fucking wear it. Um, You just get shot in the face. And you're just, you're literally walking through opportunities for somebody to kill you. When that's what happened. So we'd we'd come up to Crocodile Ridge, we'd put that OP in, and then we drove round to the north of the Crocodile Ridge. And then we, some, I think we went through that little pass. Yeah, so and now then we came from the north. The company we? was was so where Crocodile Ridge would go. Obviously, it moved 
uh, vertical from south to north with a ridge approximately halfway across the, the center of it. To the southwest was Nalzad, which kind of looked like... Oh, what's that city? No, you said Lord of the Rings. What's that city? Where, Gondor. Looked like Gondor because it's, it's at the base of a hill and then goes up into a hill as well. Not as extreme. It doesn't have the white tower or whatever. Is and that then, Helm's Deep? Yeah. What, what, Helm's Deep's in the mountain, isn't it? Yeah, so is Gondor. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> a couple of geeks. But then north of that, and sort of um, to to the west of the, the northern tip of the Crocodile Ridge was another village. And we got contacted from there and uh, between Nauzad and that village. But people did put a an OP up in, or at least went up on foot into the centre of that. Mm. And I think there was like farmers and shepherds up there who were who had been up there for a while, who were calling in attacks on Nauzad. And I remember we used to have a really short Terp. A Terp means an interpreter. So an Afghan guy from, he was from the, uh, I want to say Sunni, but it's not Sunni. It's a, it's one of the Afghan tribes that is the smallest amount of people. So the, therefore the most persecuted. And he was brutal. And he used to just sit on top of a Viking rather than be inside a Viking as we were driving along with his helmet and goggles on. And he had a stick. And he used to, when, it, when he saw people, they wouldn't answer his questions. He used to hit them with a stick. Can't remember what it's called. It's really short. It's about, it's about your height. Wasn't me. <laughs> about your height, yeah. But that, yeah, that was, and we moved across the ground and it was, and it was great. But, um, you know, and it was obviously a unique tour because that subsequent tours, like Herrick 12, weren't the same. It was a little bit kinetic at the end of there, wasn't it? We'll move on to that in a sec, but it was a, a, a different kettle of fish because I think Herrick 5 and was it 8 or 9 that the lads went on? 5, 7 and 9. Yeah, they were they were a little bit more kinetic, but then the ID um, tactic came in, didn't it? In fact, we got hit by the first IED at that now sound. No, it was Kajaki. That was uh, Marty Pellin's vehicle, wasn't it? That went over, it, it reversed, and because it was behind me. Was it called Sprite? Yes. Who was the driver? Really, really energetic guy. I don't Blonde know. Hair. I think he's a surfer now. Couldn't tell you. Oh. But yeah, they, they reversed over it. and Because uh, that's where Mick Cow got his military cross from. For getting the guys out the back of the Viking that drove over the uh, over the IED. Well, that's what he got that was a, a, a weird little, a I've weird a, little scenario. Sorry, I've got a fly in this room. You know, the one fly that you get in your house in summer that makes you feel like you've got a dirty house. Well, your door is open. It's gone now. Sort of. Oh, yep, it's gone out the window. There we go. Yeah, so. Pausing podcasts for flies. Yeah. But I mean, so I know seven and nine were kinetic as well. And, you know, people were losing their lives. And we lost the, the largest amount in, I think it was nine, about 14 guys, um, uh, which is obviously horrendous. <clears throat> well, let's then, talk about that then. So we, we uh, came back from Herrick 5 and then we went on to train teams for two or three years. And then we've kind of mirrored our careers, really, haven't we, to a certain extent. So we were on a train team. You went and did some other things as well. Um, at Limpston, but then we both ended up back at 40 to go on to Herrick 12, and that was in 2009. Is that right? 
2009, 2010. 10. So 2010 is when we deployed mm -hmm. um, to Afghan. Um, and I'll tell, you, I, I'll tell you something about that. So when I got, when I, I kind of volunteered to go back to 40 to go out, 40 commander to go out to Afghanistan. I think it was more of a case of I wanted to not beat a demon, but because I got Kazivax from Herrick 5 at the last two mm -hmm. weeks before we came home, or supposed to come home, I really wanted just to go back out there just to sh show to myself that I hadn't, it hadn't affected me that much. But as we started to do the training, and then I realized that where I was in Bravo Company, we were going to be more mobile. So we were going out in these, like the Wimics or the armor, the um, the Land Rovers that we had with machine guns and stuff on the top. These are like more big, bigger vehicles, more heavy duty. Jackals. Jackals, yeah. But then we also got the Mastiffs as well. Mm -hmm. And I went and did the Mastiff Commanders course. And to get in and out of a Mastiff, you either have to go through the cupola at the top, which is in the middle of the vehicle, mm -hmm. or you go through the back door. That's the only way in and out. And I remember sitting there, like doing the command stuff that you do for the course. And I was going, if I get blown up in this, I'm dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am literally dead. You're and, fucked. And I was not apprehensive, but I tried to keep pushing it into the back of my head because, because of what had happened before. And it, it didn't really affect me, but I was, I think I was really quite, really quite nervous about it mm -hmm. as well. Um, well, but the thing is, you've had all the experience that we had on Herrick 5 in open and unarmored, unarmored vehicles. You've got situational awareness. So you have an element of control by your understanding of the battle space. Whereas when you went into a Mastiff or a Ridgeback, which a Ridgeback was a smaller version of a Mastiff, this thing's like 30 tons and a million pounds with bar armor all over it, <clears throat> which goes slow as shit. Um, and then I think there's a Husky as well, which looked like a, a sports car kind of version of one. Um, when you go from that, where, you, where you, you've got closed down situation awareness and you can't hear what's going outside, you're just looking through a small armored window, which is probably, I don't know, 12 inches by eight inches. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. You don't know where you are at all. You're just counting on the skill of one person who's the top cover to, to give you the situation awareness. And when you're the commander, you really need to be the top cover as well as having a, a, a top cover guy. But what was really interesting about this, so I was really apprehensive and nervous about it, but kind of brushing over it a little bit, is a statistic for you that makes me laugh now. But back then I didn't really think about it. I got blown up 22 times in a Mastiff when we were up at Fob Inkerman shit the bet did you 22 times fuck it, I've lived a charmed life I've never been blown up so altogether being Kazivak back from uh, Herrick 5 23 times we've been blown up by IEDs Jesus I've got another story that I'll talk about a little bit later on when I was with the Americans mm. and I nearly died again there which was horrendous that's why I changed branches anyway digressing um, what was I saying yeah, so at the back of uh, Fob Inkerman, there was like a big open area where the Americans had just left loads of containers and stuff there. And that was like a graveyard. Mm. So every time an upload, which is like a big vehicle convoy that used to come up from Sangin to like do some resupplies and stuff if the helos couldn't come in, which was the majority of the time because the airspace was 
controlled by small arms yeah. fire. Just, just for anyone listening, uploading this kind of like a desert caravan yeah. of loads of slow-moving vehicles going in one line, which you try and protect. So it's such a sitting duck, easy target. Uh, that brings water and food and things like that. It's just a resupply chain, yeah. isn't it? And um, Yeah. And uh, I forgot what I'm come saying there. So it's a graveyard. Yeah, so I, and then they'd come up, they they drop all the resupply off and then they'd pick all the, the busted up vehicles and, and take them back to um, back to Jackson and then back to Bastion. They'd get backloaded again, back to Bastion. It was just, it was just like super crazy. Mm. And uh, I remember we took over from the, was it the Green Jackets? No, the Rifles. And I remember being in, in Bastion before we flew out to Inkerman and they were saying, it's horrendous. You can't go out of the gate because there are IEDs everywhere mm. and you'll get shot at within 100 metres of being outside the gate and you can't run away because you have to Valen. So a Valen is like a mine detector um, that you that basically as you leave a compound or you go on patrol, whereas you used to be able to go out loosely and just go walking, you can't do that. You have to walk really slowly the guy at the front, or you've got two guys at the front that are mind sweeping to check that there's any IDs there. And then being the commander, you have a load of spray tins that you have in your hand or in your pocket and you're spraying this lane down. And then if anything happens, you can't just go to the nearest cover. You have to run back down that lane again. And hopefully there's a bit of cover that you can jump into because if you jump out of that lane, they're probably drawing you into an area that's covered with IDs yeah, and tech you all yeah, out. Mate, it's crazy. It's mental because... <clears throat> You're channeled in how you move anyway because you're channeled in the direction in which you can go and the direction in which you can clear the ground with those metal detectors of the Valens. Um, but you're also channeled in the speed and time in which it takes to get anywhere because you're all carrying fucking shitloads of kit in a, high in a high threat, therefore high intensity and high stressful environment. And it's red hot. So you can only carry so much water and you've got to do a 14-hour patrol. So it's exhausting. Um... And then as a commander, horrendous as a Valen guy, because you literally are looking at the ground with your minesweeper. You've got a rifle and you've got a pistol, but you've got to, you're you're responsible for everyone's life. And and when IDs have gone off, the guys who are on the Valens, because an ID will normally be set to go off, not on the point man, but somewhere in the middle to cause the greatest level of devastation and distraction, um, or at both extremes. Um, to take the front and last guy out, the, the guys who are minesweeping take it really, really badly and they think that they failed because they've gone past something. But actually, it's a sophisticated enemy that's planted their weapon system to hit, to, to, to be most, most devastating. But that was a changing face of warfare. Whereas before, yeah, we were at, like I was saying, you, you were walking into death Whereas this time you were crawling into death because the, the your ability to not use speed and jump into any level of cover or ditches that you possibly could, because that's where they would plant a secondary IED, um, and which would then explode. So initial one would go off, boom, cause dis disruption. You then move into cover. They've already sighted and wrecked the area where the cover was. You move in there, and then there'd be some command wire dug into a wall or something, and a um, homemade exp HME homemade explosive tub 50 liters of of explosives and then they'd let that off and then kaboom um and then they'd wait and then a helo would come in or a kazivac at another point which they'd wreckied and that's where they put a tertiary ied 
So that it was a really sophisticated enemy. So the subsequent tours, you could see how because we would come in and take over for somebody, and then they say all these scary stories, and your initial reaction is, "Come on, you obviously haven't been doing things right." Whereas that isn't the case; they would have been facing a different enemy because the enemy would then rule on out as new fighters came in, and then they go on leave or their holiday, and then it would change with summer and winter tours. Well, this is how Blase it was. We got there. So it was complex. We were driving up and down the road there, which was called the 611. 611. And we'd been going up and down there, had no ID strikes for maybe a month, two months. And this is how Blase it got. We were doing post runs from one end of, so the sort of like the middle third of. Yeah, so you drive down to Jackson and get stuff. And get then some and then out. drive back again. Yeah. But then stuff started getting blown up and. Yeah, it, it all changed. Did you do any ground patrols when you were out there? I, well, I did in support of the troops. Um, so I I can't remember what it's called. But we were based along the road from Jackson to Inkerman, Barney, a place where Barney was and Clem. Um, that would have been not Ezra. They changed all the names to Afghan names for some reason. Do you know what? I really can't remember the I names remember. of the... So, I remember a few of them. So we're Jack... I mean, I'm pointing at a, at a table. So you've got Jackson here in the centre with a high ground. Yeah. And then along this wadi, going here, you had a like a five-storey building. Right. And then you had a road coming to the left of that. So you go through the market, come up over a hill, and there was an AMP station. Yep. And then you just go over the brow slightly, and up and right on the hill was yep. where Barney and Clem were. Yep. Um, which was like hugely exposed. One of my lads, uh, Kev, got shot just driving up the hill into the into the base. And then there was another PB where I think Al Hewitt was. Yep. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's a cracking story, that one. They were closing that down. Fuck me. And then Inkerman was further on. So that's, that's where we were based after we came down from Kajaki. So I deployed late because I had a cancer scare. So I was all ready to go as one of the troop sergeants. And then I started to shit blood. And I thought, oh, I need some anusol. Go and see the doctor who fingered my hoop and said, uh, you're not going anywhere. And I was like, but I'm going to Afghanistan in a week, dog. And he's like, you're not going anywhere. And he put like this ancient torture device up, like, which looked like a duck, a metal duck. And, and it went quack, quack, quack. And he, look, he took his eye and looked up my eye and said, you're not going anywhere. So I had a biopsy in this cancer scare, which was an emotional time emotional to see my troop go without me and i'd done the recce for kajaki with the rifles which is really strange because this is what i found different between herrick 5 and 12 was the handover their oc was telling our oc so officer commanding of the company which is a major oh look here's a here's a here's a graph of how much less we fired than the last tour and showed the depreciation in the quantities of munitions fired now that's great if that relates to stability and peace that's coming into the into the battle space which is what you hope for um but that's not what was happening it was still very unstable but there was a the less desire by at the strategic level by commanders to fire so that what they're doing is basically trying to come up with ideas of how to how to get peace quicker by being innovative with their approach but there'll be times when we were told, right, it's, we're having a vote in Sangin Valley, which means fucking zero, because nobody's, nobody came to vote anyway, and nobody was going to vote. It's not like some random farmer and his wife's going to come and go, right, we're voting against the Taliban, because they just have their heads cut off and then they'll be shot, and their children sold into slavery. Um, but there'll be like, you're not firing any automatic weapons on 
voting day. Well, no, you can't put that restriction in because if you're in contact, then you've got to save your life and you've got under something called card alpha, which is the rules and laws of engagement, you can use any appropriate level of force in which to do it. So I found 12 quite restrictive by my commanders for that. It was. It was almost kind of the point where you had to uh, fire until fired upon. What was that? Under siege? Yeah. Yeah. You You can't fire until you fired upon. Which was which was bonkers, because we were watching all. I remember being in the um, being in the CP in Inkerman because my troop sergeant got flown back for some welfare mm. stuff. So I took over as the troop sergeant job, uh, about maybe a third to halfway. Surge. Uh, yeah, it's surge. Towards the end, and I remember just sitting in the CP watching this drone footage and watching guys digging IEDs into the yeah, floor yeah, yeah, yeah. and I remember we went and clear we did a, a clearance up and there was not a 105 shell it was a 2,000 pound JDAM that hadn't exploded that they dragged off that they put so you know that compound that you were talking about uh, where Clem and Barney yeah, yeah, were yeah. behind there is where they dug it in that was a fishbowl behind there, wasn't it? Yes, and that Loads was like, of rifles guys uh, and it was super, there, di- super yeah, yeah. dangerous place. We actually, I've got another story about we that. Lived, we took over that place as well and lived well, there. Well, we did, we did the clearance patrol through there. Anyway, um, so they dug this IED in, but it was really weird where it was. Hmm. So either side of where it was, there was 15 foot mud walls. Which are rock hard. Which are rock hard. And there were cars driving up and down it. So it was a radio controlled IED. So we went up there to clear it and the and the EOD came out. And as they were digging it, it was like, well, I mean, what how big's this table? What, three foot three foot in length? This? Yeah. Three, four foot? I well, don't know. If this, you think this is three foot, how big's your <laughs> This is no, this is about five foot. Is it? Yeah. This okay. is this is three foot. It was about that big. Right, and then cylindrical was if you put your arms and you make a circle out yeah, in front yeah. of you, that's how big it was. That's massive in the ground. Yeah. And it got put onto a trailer on the back of a quad. And I was looking at, I'm thinking, I might have some photos of it somewhere. I might have, I don't know. But I was like, oh my god, if this had gone off, it wouldn't have just taken the person out. It would have took out the whole fucking village. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's how yeah, big yeah. it was. I've got videos of JDAMs <laughs> being dropped on dropped on compounds and they just obliterate them. But yeah, I mean, that one, where we found that IED, it, it was kind of like leading on to the story I was saying about. So we were clearing this pathway for the guys behind us. So it was a company plus coming up to clear this road where the IED was. And... We just got up to like a little, I guess you could call it like a vulnerable point, but it was the only way that the vehicles could get out onto the road. Okay. And there was a little low like mud wall mm-hmm. and the mortars lads had been tasked to go and do protection. We'd all been given locations to go and do like overwatch protection while they're, while they're digging up this IED. And um, lad's name I'm not going to mention because his family might listen or something like that, but the mortars lads went off and they went through a vulnerable point. Don't know what happened because we were a little bit further up and we just heard the explosion. And my front man at the time, uh, a guy called Bro, um, he valoned as fast as he could down the road and we got to them. And I don't want this to sound like 
it's only disrespect to, to the mortars lads, but they hadn't been on the ground like like we had. Mm-hmm. So they were they were spread out, a little bit of all round defence. Some of the lads were trying to work on this lad. And when we got there, this is really sound it's gonna sound really weird considering the guy just got blown up by an IED. All I remember from that is that he was lying on the floor and it just looked like he was just lying on the floor with mm. with his clothes on and that was it. There was no blood, there, there, there was no anything. This is what I remember. And I might have, my brain might have knocked it out. Mm. So I got all the lads around and I pushed them out into the into the security, pulled um, Reedy in, who was the sergeant major, and they called the MERT in, so the, the medical um, emergency response team. Mm-hmm. Uh, came in on on the uh, on the Sea King, I think it was, or it might have been the Black Hawk. Black Hawk, yeah. 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 So they came in on that, and and they landed. And as they landed, you know, you were talking about the wait for the helos to come in to blow a second IED <laughs> device up. Well, the cheeky little fuckers <laughs> had gone round into the compound that was adjacent, so we weren't on that side of where they were, and they were firing at the Mert. So the helo had landed probably about like. 50 to 60 meters away but he got thrown on super quick and and flown off subsequently he died unfortunately but i went i went back i'm talking about me a lot here anyway anyway I carried the story but it's your but it's, it's you in the story I'm, I'm like i'm watching your face and this is no nobody can see this but i'm watching your face as you tell this story and what i love about this for people like us who have, who have been there is you can get lost in the story as you're telling it because you're you're reliving it partially, but also, I mean, I don't know if you feel like this. You feel like a fraud telling the story because it's half of the stuff that we say is unbelievable, but we know it's real. And I'm looking at your eyes, which are completely focused. Mm. So you know, people go, "Oh, steely eyes, steely-eyed warrior." That's not. It. Fucking is because when you look in your eyes, it's they are, they'll see through you. So it's awesome to listen to you tell stories about. Well, so anyway, the, the the Merc got flown off and i remember going back so we, the whole the whole op got cancelled mm. so we made our way back and we went back to the uh to the location that we were secured in and i remember just sitting there and there's only two times i've ever really cried mm. and that was one of them because oh my god I'm, I'm going up now i almost felt like it was my fault and it mm. But what really annoyed me about this was, again, I'm not saying who it, who it was. Did he have ears like this? Yeah. All right, I know you're talking. So <clears throat> afterwards, we had a little bit of a debrief, and he basically said, "We've just lost a guy to day one, week one of RSRI training, which is the pre-training you do when you land in theatre before you." before you deploy and we'd already been on the ground like three or four months mm-hmm. and i took that really personally yeah, yeah. like it affected me a lot because it was almost like even though it wasn't aimed at me mm-hmm. it was a it was a general comment but i like i just got up and i, and I walked out and i was so angry like mm-hmm. so angry and Reedy was a sergeant major um he's i think he's a major now maybe and, and he, he's fucking sound as well. And he came up and he calmed me down. I was like that. I lost a little respect, a little bit of respect for that person mm. then. Um, but that was that was probably the only other time that I ever cried was mm. on Jakarta. We'd been yomping for ages. Got to the top of this mountain, told that to move. 
have you seen have you seen that picture on facebook and it's like i think it's uh, what's your idea of hell and uh it's a picture of like these americans and a guy at the front saying contact yeah yeah, yeah. miles away for fuck's sake but that's literally what it was we'd, we'd been yomped we yomped up this like it was a mountain we were like <laughs> twenty thousand feet up got to the top Goofy. and we got told yeah this is this is where the ceo is you can't be here and I just, I was looking around like my feet were hurting. I'd been walking all, I'd been walking all day. One sleeping bag between two because you're carrying ammo. Long story short, we, we ended up bivvying up somewhere and I had to, I said, oh, I'm going to go for a poo, as you do. And uh, I walked off and I just sat there for a little bit and went, oh my God. And just had a little bit of a cry from yeah, perfect place because it was just so Belson. It's <laughs> so hard. Belson is a word that comes from the concentration camp in World War Two. It is, so I probably won't say it again. Which means it's fucking that, hard. That's how bad it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's brutal, because that, that statement is a crass statement based upon, you know, a, one of your brothers in arms. And what it shows is the level of responsibility that individual people take for everyone else. And I think that spawns from, certainly spawns from our what we did with J Company, where we were the vanguard for everything. And we took huge responsibility for what happened because you're in a position of fire sport all the time. It's um, this will sound cheesy, and other people in our our it's fine. Let's do my head in. Um, other people in our line of my work might sound says it sound Chad or, or whatever, but I don't really like Goggins says fuck people. I don't care what anybody else thinks, and I think we we're in a position where we can say I don't care what you think. But um, that that attitude adds, in my opinion, is what heroes are made of which sounds cheesy and shad but it's absolutely what heroes are made of it's a person who will take responsibility even though they haven't been delegated that authority by somebody who's allowed to delegate authority it's the basis of a fine upstanding person that ev- that we sh- all should be in the community so you're fucking hoofing man how did you find that tour anyway i mean i've i've talked for probably about 20 minutes about how and i've come to do a podcast review and i've talked about me <laughs> yeah well so so for i was with delta company um and i i felt restricted straight away because i didn't have a very good relationship with my oc uh i i'm not gonna say his name but i still think he's a bell end um and i didn't get to deploy great sergeant major really good friend of mine um I'm not going to say his name either, but he's the Phoenix. Forever young. <laughs> he's, he's like Benjamin Button. Um, he gets younger looking and more handsome the, with each year that he passes. And I hope he listens to this because he is a legend of a bloke. Uh, and we and we, we went out and we, we took over Kajaki off the rifles. Uh, I, I went out two months later on because uh, I was a, I was doing a hospital test for that um, bleeding bleeding hole uh, syndrome that I had and uh, and the guys went out and it's, I don't really want to talk about Kajaki because there's some things that are controversial that really pissed me off but basically we left Kajaki um, and then moved down to Sangin and then we moved into Bravo Company's tactical area of operations which was I've got to think about the, the Cardinal Bearers now I think where Sangin was it would be been west northwest north. it was north so it was up the sangin valley okay so it's it was going north so we came into sangin and then we went to take over barney and clem's position up that road wherever that road is and whatever that um that fob was called so the ford operating base um and we we did a few patrols and it was 
it was all right. I felt really pulled back by my OC who felt, I think he felt like I was going to go gung-ho because of a, a reputation that I might have had, which isn't the case. Everything is everything is measured and it's deliberate. Um, and I was a sergeant then as well, rather than a corporal. So I wasn't a commander. And there's a, there's a huge difference between being a corporal, being a lieutenant, um, being a... Uh, being a you're more of an example setter. You are. You, you're there to do the ad- administration and make sure everyone's okay um, and be a mentor for the commander. But you don't have the active leadership role, which was difficult for me because I am a natural leader, an extrovert, and gobshite and want to be at the front. And, hey, everyone, look at me, look at me. And I can manage to pull it off in many, many, um, many, many situations. Um but it wasn't my time to shine at the front. It was everybody else's time to shine. Uh, so for me, it was a it was a damp a damp tour. But there was a few things that happened. Um, we would do sort of QRF things going from whatever that checkpoint is down to Jackson, and and we were trying to build the defences from the road because the road was moving north, and then you would come off the road and go up a steep incline, which was completely exposed to sniper shots. And where the where this fob was the you could get if you were the enemy you could get eyes on from thousands of meters away directly to this this overexposed position in which we were in it's only once you were behind the hesco bastion walls which are these um these pull out baskets that you then fill with dirt and sand um that you had any protection you can still fire mortars into you and it, that was just west of the fishbowl uh, so uh, an open area that was dangerous but where, you, where your fob was, you just had to like look over the Hesco Bastion and that, that's where people were living. So they, you were surrounded all of the time. So we would um, we had a few people shot. We had a, a, an engineer shot in the face on sentry. He died. Uh, one of my guys shot in the chest as he was driving up. Um, a guy called Kev. Um, I think we had two, two or three people shot on the sentry. So we tried to armour it. So we got armoured glass out of Mastiffs. Um, and we would drive down and pick them up in trailers. And one time I went down to Jackson and then was was driving back. And I, and then a bit of Herrick 5 came in. The market was full and I was like getting the guys to beep their horn because so, they should move out the way for ISAF. And I was like, fuck this. Everyone's crowding round. Just drive. And so in the massive I was in, we just drove off. And then I heard... And it wasn't machine gun fire. It was the bar armor knocking against an ANP, so an Afghan National Police Hilux. And it went along the back of it and pushed it into a ditch. Also pushed another car into the ditch. And then we drove off with all our stuff back to the fob. And then just went beep, beep. And got these blue AMP Hiluxes bombing off up to this AMP checkpoint, which we had to go past. And then the police, the Afghan National Police coming out with RPGs and machine guns because they thought we tried to attack them because they heard this sound as well. And they're going fucking ballistic in front of us. And there's a guy called Bimps, who I'm mates with on Facebook, and he's a hoofing bloke, who was on a husky, who, who was like, fuck, is, is, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, and some of our top gunners were like, shall we shoot? Shall we shoot? Because these, these Afghan National Police are pointing machine guns, PKMs, um, and AK-47s, and RPGs at our vehicles. And then what I've got to remember is I'm in a vehicle that can take an RPG and can take machine gun fire, whereas I was used to jackals and Wimmick where, you know, 
You can't. You, you just fucking. I would just shoot them. Wouldn't even think twice about it. They'd be dead. Um, and there was a bit of a standoff and nearly an international incident, um, which was something. Another one was if you went north on the Wadi, there was that five-story building. I don't know if I mentioned this the last time. We'd, we'd, there was a contact and one of the one of the troops, so one of the rifle troops of the company was in there. Is this one that used to be a hotel back in the day? I think it was. It's five. Yeah, I think they called it Airport Hotel. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they had a contact, and in there was. Oh, I did talk about this. This was a time when um, I said, "Lads, go downstairs," and then the two IC of the ANA was closing in on me, and I thought, "I'm just gonna have to pull my pistol out and just shoot everyone in the face." Did I talk about that? No. All right. Okay. This is a fucking. If I haven't, if I've spoken about it before, because I'm like a broken record player, but a really good looking record player. (laughs) And um, so we had a a rifle troop. So 30 blokes that were in this location called the Airport Lounge, which was on the side of the Wadi going north from the Sangin district um, center. So our our Fob Jackson, the base. And the Taliban had contacted them. So they had a firefight. And then uh, we were the QF, so the Quick Reaction Force, back at our FOB. Um, uh, one of the pieces of equipment had gone missing. A, oh, I want to say CTLS. Or CWS. La- no, Laser Rangefinder. Okay. By, C- I think it's called a CTLS. CWS. C- no, that's... No, uh, just said the same thing. Twice. I'll just agree with you. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, it's a box that sees at night and you can point it and it gives you direction. Safety. No. no that's Carry a, on. That's Carry a site. Um, so it's about, yeah, it's about this big. I think it's called a CTLS. Um, and it does a laser range find to so fire a laser and it tells you how far away things are so you can target correctly for weapon systems and get their range drums um, put on properly. You can also take bearings from you to somewhere. So you can you can call in fire missions with a correct bearing from planes and uh, bombers and people. And then you can take different bearings from targets that you've already laid out. So you can do multiple directional bearings for, for other things as well. And it's got a day and night sight. So it's an amazing bit of kit, and it's and it's probably about five inches by five inches. Fantastic. So one of those went missing. So it's a it's a piece of equipment that's attractive to terrorist organizer and criminal organizations, which is something we call ACTO. Uh, so I went down as a QRF commander to to investigate. So I drove down, reversed my mastiff up, and then you get out this armored door. Then you have to jump out, walk along, jump over a wall, and then go into the bottom floor. So another area for shooting people. So every, everything you do, everywhere you move, you're moving from cover to cover, kind of like in um, Full Metal Jacket, where the sniper's just picking dudes off. So the potential's there. And if you thought about it, you'd go crazy. But you just got to do what you got to do, just like in life. So I went in, spoke to some people. Down the bottom was some, I don't know, army guys. And then the different floors were populated by different people. And then the top floor... Yeah, the top floor before the, the roof, that's where the ANA, so the Afghan National Army were. And then, then there was the roof area. So I went up and I spoke to our guys on the roof. So what happened? You know, get 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 a bit of situation awareness. This is where we did this. Then I put those, I, I was looking through there to get a target. Then I put those on the, on the wall. And then I went around and I fired some more rounds. And then, then I looked back and it had gone. And they had ANA up them with them as well. And clearly, that was one plus one equals... The ANA stole the fucking piece of equipment because the ANA came from different areas and they were they were drafted into that location. And normally, what you found is the commander of the ANA patrol or uh, yeah platoon 
he was cool. But when he went on his leave, the two IC, so the second in command, would take over. And the two IC of the platoons were always absolute wankers. So I came down and, and started to speak to the two IC because the commander was on, on, on leave. Obviously, all these guys are off their face on opium. Absolutely wasted. And I'm saying, oh, right, we've lost this bit of equipment. And he's taking it as if I'm having a slight to his honour. And he's fucking shouting in my face and going, you you know, being very aggressive. And I'm like trying to calm down. No, 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 we just want to find this bit of equipment because the Dushman, which means enemy in Pashtun, you know, he's going to he's gonna get these and um, he's going to cherry day. So he's going to build, uh, make an explosive and, and blow us up. Anyways, he's going ballistic. He's like, look, you've got all your guys here with weapons. Send, you know, you've come here. And I said, like, no, no. And he's like, send them away, send them away. So we have something called a link man. So when we move through buildings, we always have somebody at a doorway so that you can maintain communication and eyes on. So observation of people who are moving forward in different bounds for an objective. So there was, there was a link man there. And I was like, uh, and there was a couple of guys in, in the stairwell. And I was like, guys, just go down the stairs a sec, hoping that they knew to keep a fucking link man at the stairs to keep an eye on me. But they all just fucking went downstairs to talk to their mates from the other troop. So I'm like, fuck, they've gone, they've gone. And meanwhile, this, I think it was about 15 A&A guys started to swarm around me. And they're, they're, you, you just look in their eyes, bloodshot to shit because of opium. And this guy's going fucking bonkers. And... I just thought this is one of those times where I thought this is it, and I've got I've got thirteen bullets in my Browning pistol. It's cocked, loaded, made ready. I just need to. I'm going to have to. So I put my hand on my pistol, and I just knew I'm going to have to just shoot this two IC straight in the face, and then just go bang, bang, bang around this crescent of guys circling me until I've killed as many people as possible before they kill me. That's how intense this argument had got. And I was like, fuck, there's no way out of this because my link man's gone. I've got no support. I'm going to... And this bloke's spitting in my face with rage. Uh, so that was kind of a, a worrying time. But I managed to calm him down. Cause, but, but I was prepared to fucking shoot him. Um, but there's so many situations like that. Oh, like some, some, what, but somebody like... With not so much your, your calm and assertive nature would potentially have done that. Yeah. Which would have caused... You put an a, American in there. Fuck me. They... Oh. Fucking mow them down with machine gun. Or the right one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, put the right one. Jesus. Yeah. Um, what's another one? So there was, there was loads of other ones. There was clearance in the Sangin Valley again, um, where, uh, which was quite slow for me, but I met a really get, great guy called Dan Fedder, who was a master sergeant. EOD. Well, this was the when the Americans came up. Yeah, the 82nd Airborne and a load of the Pathfinders and there was a bunch of other... It's like it was like an international up silver again, wasn't it? It was, yeah. From Herrick so, Five. Kajak, the reason why we had left Kajak in the first place is the I think the eighty second. I know it was an it was an artillery unit that took over from us in Kajaki, and they wanted to kill all the dogs that were up there. Dogs are hoofing in Afghanistan; they're absolutely hoofing. Um, cats, not so. They shit on your bed, um, but it's still lovely to have pets around. And that actually grounds you and keeps you keeps humanity close by i think by having those 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 animals around so they came in they came in we were in no laid then i think no no we were in sangin then and then we did a clearance patrol so we had this guy called dan fedder and justin Bauman, who i'm makes of on linkedin and i got on really well with dan fedder uh big tall bald so cool as ass haircut just like me um guy really funny down to earth um 
he unfortunately died on that tour um, doing his job, like like in Hurt Locker, when they literally, because these EOD guys, they literally pick up the wire and pull it and see what happened and then, and then go and fix the problem. Whereas our guys, they're a little bit more cautious. Um, but he, he was doing that one day and, and got blown up by a secondary IED whilst he was diffusing one IED. Uh, we were on the ground, cleared the, it's called, cleared the Sanger Valley. Um, and we were staying in buildings and I was with a guy called Andy. I'm not going to say his surname, but he knows who he is. He's a, he's a big guy. Um, not fat, he's muscly. <clears throat> but they were staying in, uh, Dan Fedder was still alive then, but they were staying overnight into a building. So they uh, seconded a building. And he put his elbow against the wall and it crumbled. And on the other side of there were two, I think a whole arms width. So he put his arm in all of, I think they're 25 or 45 litre containers full of HME. So what had happened is everybody had left because there was very few contacts. It was fleeting as we were pushing forward and then we occupied the area. So, um, but the direction in which we moved was, wasn't the right direction for them to get to the firing point for the Taliban to get to the firing point. So they couldn't set off these IEDs. So they would have just taken a whole troop. So like 30 blokes plus boom, boom, so it was all wired to blow as we pushed through, but luckily we pushed them in the direction that was not conducive to what their plan was. Um, I had a Benelli shotgun then, first time I've ever carried a shotgun into battle, which I, which I love. It makes you feel like somebody in Predator. No range on it though. No, 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 and it hurts you when you fire. There's nobody firing shotguns and going, "Yeah, that was easy." Did you fire a shotgun? Like fucking Jesus yeah. Christ, that was horrendous. Let's put this down and leave it for yeah, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> and it's only eight rounds. So, uh, yes, I had a Benelli shotgun and a pistol and a rifle. Um, and then we moved from Sangin up to Nole, where Alpha Company was, which was great because it was with some tankies, some heavy weapons guys there. Um, and we were then just doing mobile patrols. And it was great because Nole was a, a HLS, so a helicopter landing site for resupplies from Bastion, the big base, which had moved from f my first tour, which was like, just a, a bit of scrub to a full-on town with 30, 30 meter concrete walls and x-ray machines and pizza hut and dominoes and all that kind of shit um and you used to have a airdrop from a i'm gonna say a hip russian, russian yeah, yeah russian, yeah, russian hip, hip, yeah, yeah. which is an armored helicopter flown by drunk russian pilots which the it's the helo in rambo when he's in afghanistan it's one of them. So it's definitely not the hind, which yeah. looks like a monkey with a respirator on. Yeah. So it's not the attack helicopter, but it's armoured. So it's an armoured it's an armored people carrier, helo, basically. And uh, for some reason, they just had this glut of steak. So we just had fresh cut steak every single day, cooked on um, corrugated iron. Uh, so that was great. And went out on some patrols. But again... This is one of the things that frustrated me because the, the the plan was to support local elections and try and bring some structure and governance to Sangin, which you're not doing. It's not there now. It wasn't there then. And it's never going to be there unless something really dramatic changes. Um, so it's an absolute waste of time. And you can see that when you've been on operations before and you can you can read what the the patterns are like. So we would we would dominate high ground as in an effort, and I'm inverting commas with my fingers now that ads can see, in an effort to 
to provide protection or at least the image of protection around. But the, the thing is, the local people don't give a shit. They just want to crack on with their life. So you dominate high ground. The rule in Afghanistan is don't cover the same ground twice, which can become challenging and difficult. But if it's high ground and you're moving along ridges, then you know not to go down there. So we, we would occupy a bit of high ground, go away, and then be ordered to go back. And then there'd be ID explosions. One of them had blew up my OC's vehicle. <clears throat> so I went to to go and um, help Kazivak them. But nobody was injured, but recover their vehicle. Um, he was in his vehicle. No, don't come any closer. Don't come any closer. But um, I don't believe I'm meant to die in warfare, which is silly, but it's a belief that I have. Uh, so I just walked up to his vehicle. He called, there's a mine. There's a mine right next to the vehicle. But it wasn't. It was one of the, the hubcaps off a jackal. I was managed to calm them down, get them out. Then we had to drive back to Nole. So this is a good 40k. Drive back to Nole, pick up an SVR, which is a recovery truck. So it's an, a million pound um, big truck with a hook on it to, to pick up this arm, other armoured vehicle. Had a stake. Um, go and get it with a new vehicle for the OC and then take the broken vehicle back. So me and Boxhead went back in two jackals to 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 move this um this vehicle back for recovery um some sporadic shooty fire like pinged off nothing major but there was one where boxhead had gone down a little bit of ground and then partially went over an ied which partially detonated and this was this was again like 50 liter um containers of homemade explosives so half of it had exploded I got my guys to get out of their jackal and then I got in the driver's seat and then drove up to the rear of their vehicle, um, got them to jump on my vehicle so that they didn't have to drive off it. Then I jumped in their vehicle whilst they drove my vehicle away and then I drove off the bomb. Um, and you could see as you're driving off, because you're driving slowly, you're thinking, I hope the rest of this doesn't go off. But I was kind of confident that the initial detonator had failed um, so there was no other secondary detonator but it could have been you know but i didn't have kids then you know i didn't have my own children then so i kind of didn't really give a shit about the risk um and then brought it back in but i fell out of my my oc a few times but it was a great time to push the boundaries of finding ieds as well because what they would do they would they were so innovative you'd be doing valenin just yourself as you as you're looking around um, and then you come to a mound and then there'll be like a bayonet in a mound and some um, bullet links some round links so with machine guns they're, they're linked by little steel chains and when you fire and then move all that steel's left over so they collect it and put it places so that it stops you so once you get a signal off your valve you've got to clear that area you can't bypass it unless you get ordered to because um, so I found a bayonet once and some link in a mound of ground, which was obviously there for a reason, for a secondary attack or a lead on to an attack. Um, they used to get um, lights, so car lights, the plastic car lights, which and then put a trigger inside it. So when a vehicle drove over cracking the light, it would then activate and then detonate a charge. But you'd find these on the ground that we'd already taken over. And we would tell our commanders, fuck, why the fuck are we going back to this same ground? It's basically a death wish. And then we'd find these things. And you're, you're only supposed to wipe, to discover, to, to move some debris away enough 
to go, that's an IED. And then you call in something called a 10-liner, which is a, an EOD report to the demolitions. Were they called EOD? EOD, yeah. Yeah, EOD. <clears throat> I wonder what the American ones are called. Can't remember. Um, the EOD, and then they'll fly in. But they were so busy because they had so limited people. It takes fucking ages. So you then stuck on the ground and then became a target again around this one um, one ID. And then they'd come in and go, right, everyone stand back, stand back. And you're like, come on, mate. We've been here for 12 hours walking around this thing. Um, but the more that you could identify, the quicker they would come. So we, you, you'd, you'd have like a paintbrush because you might have seen pictures with guys and they've got a paintbrush on one side, which is for cleaning their weapons and finding bombs. And then you'd sort of like uncover loads of this bomb and then just put some of it back as long as it doesn't go on the trigger. But it was an interesting tour. It was my last tour of Afghanistan. Um, one of my recruits in training got hit by an, um, um, a suicide bomber. Uh, I was watching the the rover camera. Yeah, the rover camera. Uh, watching their patrol, and he was walking along. Uh, a guy called Ads. I won't say his surname, but uh, Ads. And um, and then you just see this old guy in a in a white dish dash. I don't know how racist that sounds, but that's what we call him. Dish dash in a in a white turban, big white beard. Elder approach the patrol, and then just poof, flash on the camera, and then a, and then a Kazivak. And then he came in and um, I saw him. It, it wasn't, he wasn't part of my company, but I actually felt I felt some emotion towards it. This is a guy that I took through training. Um, and we weren't especially good friends because I was a, a recruit instructor and he was recruiting. You know what that means. You know, you have some banter, but you're not Bezzy Oppos. Um, but he's a fellow commando and I knew him because uh, I taught him with some other corporals how to become a commando. So you feel responsible for the people that you teach and coach and mentor. Um, and I, I feel very privileged to be one of the people who had the hands on his stretcher to take him to um, take him to the the casualty evacuation helicopter. Uh, and I think he he ended up. This will sound a bit strange. He ended up a bit fucked up from it, physically and mentally. Um, and you know, as as this man who sat across me knows, being blown up is not a fun experience. Um, it's certainly a brutal thing that will affect you forever. Uh, I've lived this charmed life where I've kind of like dodged everything. Um, even people that died in J Company, I wasn't there, I was on leave. So I've just lived this charmed life. I mean, a burst eardrums and hit by, shot at with RPGs and things that have partially or exploded near me, but nothing like you guys. So um, I, I count myself very lucky uh, with that. Well, on that note, I'll spin one last story before we wrap this up. So again, very similar where the Americans were taking over and I was... I was put in with um, the, the EOD, American EOD team, and they had this vehicle called uh, it's called a Buffalo. I keep saying Gruffalo because that's what I called it. Yeah. Mega digressing. I call surf breaks lots of different things. Like there's a there's a surf break in, in Portugal called Carrot uh, Carapatera, and I call it, call it carrots and potatoes. <laughs> yeah. There was another one called Arifan. I used to call it Harry Fanny. Yeah, yeah. So. I used to call it different, I forget. Yeah. Anyway, I was in this uh, vehicle, these EOD guys, and on this vehicle, the Gruffalo, it's got a big um, digger arm on the end of it. So their guys, they have two vehicles at the front when they're clearing. So we were clearing the 611 from Inkerman all the way back down to Jackson because it was the most IED'd stretch of road probably on the planet at the time. Had they put that matting down on it? No, no. 
Because it was what, supposed to be like anti-ID matting, wasn't it? Built into know. the road. Well, this was nothing like that. Mm. So basically, these two vehicles, they were basically made of sticks. And, and they had sensors in them. And there was like, all I can explain is it's like a a um, a corn cropper in a field with like little spray canisters on the bottom. And as it goes along, it detects it. It sprays onto the floor. They reverse out the way. The Gruffalo comes along with this big digger arm, digs up the IED from the floor, puts it to one side. The guys get out in the vehicle that I was in and then they blow the ID up and that's how they go down the road like that. Mental. Fucking hell, how long does that take? Well, it, was, it took like four days. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was crazy. Anyway, at the end of the first day, it was dark. There's a, there a few other contacts where I was calling in like... Um, the uh, the Apaches to mm. shoot some guys in a in a in a in a bun line and stuff, but that, that's another story for another time. Um, we were going back towards Inkerman, and in between, like where the houses were on the side of the road, was elevated a little bit, and down the little side streets, there were like what I could only call as little mud garages, mm. and we were driving back towards that, and they fired a one oh seven rocket, and normally when it hits something, it explodes, but it didn't this time. And I was sat in the Gruffalo and there were six chairs, so three either side and then a driver and a commander mm -hmm. in the front. So the rear passenger side is like six chairs. And I just plunked myself where I was and I literally had a radio that I put the antenna out the radio, out the, um, out the window and that's what I was calling in air and stuff like that. Okay, so were you just liaising with I was the just a liaison. Yeah. I was the only British guy within the American convoy and then all the lads were in like over over watch protection from their PBs while we were clearing along the 611. Yeah. Anyway, it got dark. We cleared as far as we could. And then we were driving back and they fired this 107 rocket. And instead of exploding, it went straight through the vehicle, but it went through the seat that was in front of me, went straight through the other side. They fired another one and it went into the engine block of the of the Gruffalo. We man. managed to limp back to... Um, Back to Inca. How, how big is a gruffalo? A buffalo. A buffalo. How big would it? It's Four, three, two size. As big as a minibus, but okay. but armored, higher. Um, wheeled or tracked? Wheeled, yeah, and uh, yeah, with a big crane on the front of it, mm. like just to dig. Nothing like mega heavy duty, but it was is enough. It size, of, size of an MRAP. Smaller than that, oh, right? Okay. Yeah, it, it, it's basically like the size of like a long wheelbase mm. minibus, six, like a 1620 seater. That's how big it was. Yeah, yeah. But we got back, and I was like, ah, You know, when I keep talking about cat lives, about I've nearly died, yeah, yeah, nearly yeah, died yeah, again, yeah. that that was one of them. And I was like, Oh, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I was talking to so I was talking to uh, my missus about a job opportunity that has come up uh, with. Um, a friend that we both share and uh, it's it's awesome but it's also insane as well um, which I think I'm going to take uh, should should it come up but I was talking to her about she said would you go back to places like Afghanistan I was like you f yeah fucking would because I've got such great memories of it I, I love the place I think it's beautiful I love the intensity I love the excitement I love the people it's kind of like going back to the beginning of where you said was one at one point you're one of the lads and you were in this group and it was warm and fantastic 
so I yearn for that as well. And I what and as strange as this sounds, and you know, everyone goes, you shouldn't do things for medals. You shouldn't do things for medals. But it's really great to get a medal, like amazing, amazing achievement um, and recognition. And it's so you have so much pride to get it because you, of what it's attached to and who it's attached to and experiences attached to. I would love to the I love the idea of going somewhere else. And being in a massive battle and, and having a great time and being super successful and then coming out and getting awarded for it, I, I think that's fantastic. But since I've had kids and then, you know, you all the time I've had in which to think about the things that we have done together, I think I've used up all of my lives as well. I think I've turned into a bit of a pussy. I'm risk averse. Well, you have and you've just grown and your mentality has changed through the experience that you've had and you've had time to reflect on yeah. it as well, which inadvertently, you know, subconsciously will change will change your mindset yeah. from that blase, I'm going to drive with no drive in my vehicle into a contact and then somebody else has got to drive me out yeah, mentality yeah, yeah. to being, do you know what? It's maybe not a good idea. No, it's not. It's not. And, and also in that evolution of life is we've had our time and now you don't need to prove anything to yourself or anyone else. And that's a really, really nice place to be. I think like now in my life, this is the most balanced and peaceful that I've ever been. And that is a great position to be in, to, to be around like my children, you know, as, as a single dad and raise them. I know I've said single dad a few times, but, you know, even as a married father like yourself, to raise your children and be a good husband. It's all amazing. And the fact that, that our lives were used up and that you have this one life, inverted commas, left, then that is the most precious life. So you use it in the best way possible. So I'm really happy that we had the experience. I'm really happy that we got to fire loads of bullets and we had lots of bullets fired at us and people made of... Bad guys may have died. Unfortunately, friendly guys and friendly girls have, have passed away. Um, and that is that is absolutely um, upsetting and a terrible thing. But altogether, it creates uh, memories and experiences that I've had that then shape me to be the best person that I possibly can be and hopefully leave the world in a better place in which I found it. And that might just be leave the world in a better place than when I was 18 and a gobshite, arrogant, aggressive person to actually maybe me helping a little old lady with a shopping across the road. That might be good enough. And I might not have done that before, whereas I'm going to do it now because actually we've experienced life and death and conflict, whereas the important thing is peace and everybody getting on. And for me, that's what Afghanistan really was a lesson in humanity a brutal lesson but they all have to be brutal so i was going to close on that point because it's pretty pertinent however i'm going to dash what you've just said now and lower the tone massively <laughs> while you were talking i was thinking about we were sat on the side of a plateau and we both went to have a poo together do you remember you went off for a crap and then i came and sat next to you literally pulled my strides down and curled one out and you were like that <laughs> What are you doing? Is that I'm having a shit, and I think you were quite dis disgruntled about that a little bit. I think. Well, I've, you know, you have fucking brought the towel. I thought I'd, <laughs> I, I thought I'd left it. I thought I'd have people like sending me their bras and pants from, from what I said at the end. But 
But that's also one of the fucking most amazing things about you. I was talking to Ads earlier on. And um, Ads is the sort of person, I said this before, Ads is the sort of person that you'd be at your wedding day that you spent fucking thousands of pounds on. The bride's family would be there. Everybody, you know, and she could be fucked. Because bootnecks, we punch. We punch well above our weight from a really well-to-do family. And then the vicar would say something like, does anybody have any reason why these two shouldn't be married? And Ads is the type of bloke who would stand up on a chair and shout, He's gay. <laughs> I know he is. Oh, he's such a prick. Uh, mate, thanks for talking to me again on the podcast. Absolute pleasure, brother. Beautiful. And that's it. If you like the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider. Also go to Instagram and Facebook and leave a little message and I'll get back to you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.